This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's considering an Olympic bid. An exploratory committee has put out a survey and will hold public meetings. But one question we keep hearing, is this thing already decided? I put that to Governor John Hickenlooper in our regular conversation at the Capitol. Is this a genuine process to get public input, or are you just checking a box in front of a decision that's already been made? (laughs) So what would you expect? I'm saying, yeah, I'm just going to check this box so we can ram this thing through. No, of course not. This is a a process, and you, you go out and collect information. And in the process of collecting information, you let the public know the real facts, right, that we're not going to use public money in any way. That's the idea that at least the proposal is that there would be no public money to fund the Olympics. That it would all be done privately through sponsorships. But there might have to be extra law enforcement things Those that would the all public be paid, provides. All, no, all paid for. Uh, and basically, we have all the infrastructure, all the buildings. So we would have to build some housing for an Olympic village. But I think sponsors would help build that. And, and hopefully that could be left behind as a affordable housing or at least a mixed development uh, type of housing. Lord knows affordable housing is a big thing. I think part of this process is to go out and let the public hear that the Olympics aren't that many people, right? The Winter Olympics is, I think, five or 600,000 people. I can't remember. Over a period of 10 days, I mean, the National Western Stock Show is more than that, right? And that just happens in Denver. The Olympics would be spread out in a couple of the ski resorts and in Denver. Look at what Denver does on, the, on Labor Day weekend. We have that many people in one weekend, in Labor Day weekend, coming in and out of this, just the city of Denver. So... When you do an exploratory thing like this, you want people to get the real facts and understand what the benefits would be and what the downsides would be. Now, you haven't mentioned any of the downsides. I have to say, you sound like a guy who wants the Olympics. Well, I think uh, I just gave you the positives because I know them. I know what the downsides are as well. And some people are going to feel that we don't need more notoriety, that, you know, that, that we've already got more than enough people. We don't want any. They want to pull up the drawbridges. I think one of the things that hosting an event like the Olympics allows a a state to do is to show the world all the progress they've made. And if they've changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years, they've built a transit system, they've got a great airport. A lot of the stuff that we've done that allows you to grow is the infrastructure allows you to go. That's where I come down and say, well, maybe that's a good idea. A lot of people think that's a bad idea because they don't want any more growth. But in 1972... Uh, Colorado went on the record as saying, we don't want the Olympics. You know, we've grown too much. We want outsiders to stay away. I think there's a strong argument that that is one of the reasons why our industry was so concentrated in oil and gas, because they couldn't move anywhere. And other industries weren't attracted and didn't come to Colorado. Uh, We talked last week with the head of the Exploratory Committee. I asked Rob Cohen if the comments from the public come in and they're 90% against or 90% for Would that be what the decision is based on? Here's what he said. If there's uh, overwhelming evidence that the community does not want the games, then the games would not be successful here. But what we want to make sure is that we're not only hearing from the minority people who are in favor of or the minority people who are against, but that we really have a good pulse on what everybody in the state of Colorado is interested in. So back to that idea. It sounds like you want the Olympics, I, I think I see the benefits more clearly than I see the downsides. Not to say, I mean, look at our congestion right now. We obviously are trying to find the resources to uh, address issues like transportation infrastructure or affordable housing. But I think there's a way to do a big event like this that could help you raise money for that. What would be the determination about whether 
Denver, the metro area, Colorado goes forward with a bid. What if comments are overwhelmingly against it? Uh, I think the, the exploratory committee would say, we've explored and we don't support it. I want to say that the, the survey, for instance, that's available right now is under the auspices of a non-governmental organization. And so that means it's not public record what the responses are. Would you make public the comments that come in on this? Sure. I, I don't have a problem with that. Three sheriff's deputies have been gunned down since New Year's Eve. And in a statement released after the latest killing, you said, we must come together and say enough is enough. What do you mean by that? I think what, what I meant was that we need to look at every possible explanation of how to protect our first responders. God, Where was ever. the first place you'd look? Uh, uh, body armor. Do our sheriffs have the highest grade body armor? We, we have a request in the budget right now and has been in there for a couple months for state patrol to get the next higher level of body armor. Again, there's always going to be exceptions. Someone gets shot in the head, right? Or someone gets shot from behind or through the neck. But, I mean, three cases, three fatalities, three separate incidents within 40 days. I just, it, it, it makes me want to cry. and It makes me want to weep. And to sit by and say, well, we've done everything we can. It's just the way it breaks, which is what some people say. I don't think that's sufficient. Where else would you look? Well, I think body armor. I think training procedures. When was the last time we did a best practices analysis on a, on a statewide basis? I'm not convinced. I, again, I've got no facts on this. I just feel like, I think like most people, I'm sitting at home frustrated, brokenhearted that another young individual has been gunned down doing their job defending, you know, the people of this state. And what, what are we going to just say? Well, that's too bad. There will be some. And certainly there will be some who won't say this is a guns issue. Well, I'm not sure it's a guns issue. I think, you know, if you're going to try and ban all the guns, it could be, I mean, one of this, these fatalities was shot with a, a pistol. Uh, another one was shot with a high volume, you know, a high caliber rifle. I mean, we have hunting weapons like that all over the state. Now, you could argue is a magazine size too large or too small. That, at least so far, doesn't seem to be the issue, right, in any of these cases. I'm not sure there's a direct gun correlation here as much as there is what I want. What I feel that we get the most return on is looking at and encouraging. Again, I don't control the sheriff's departments around the state, but I do hope this is a wake-up call to all of them to reevaluate their training. Where are we getting our standards from? Are these the best practices that we know keep our people as safe as possible? A lot of people in Colorado are on pins and needles these days, people who work in the marijuana industry, and people who use the drug. In regards to what the Trump administration is going to do next, so clearly some people in the administration want to see more of a crackdown on legal weed since it's still illegal federally. Uh, Something that's come up with new life is that the federal law could change on this. A bipartisan group of lawmakers in Washington says it's working on this. What do you think of the idea of removing marijuana from the most dangerous category under federal law? Should that happen? Well, descheduling or rescheduling marijuana, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's a a, a very long, complicated process. I don't think it's a bad idea to propose it. One of the problems with marijuana is we have not been able to do the long-term, vertically integrated 
medical studies on what are the consequences of repeated use of marijuana over, you know, by adults over a period of time. But the company that marijuana keeps on that Schedule One list... Right, it's heroin. Do you have any sense that marijuana is as serious as those drugs? No. I, I really, it is certainly not for adults. Now, I do... For, for children, I've, uh, I have been persuaded by a number of brain scientists that there's some risk. And even up into your early 20s, it's not a good idea to take high THC marijuana when you're at that younger age. But that's not the same as heroin. So you think that uh, rescheduling or descheduling would be cumbersome, but would it be worth it? Would you support such an action? Yeah, I think that if that is something that, is, that, that can be done and allows us to look at marijuana in an objective way and, and gather scientific data, I would support that. It doesn't sound like it's something you're actively, say, lobbying the congressional delegation for. Well, I think that, that our congressional de- delegation, obviously not everyone, but it would support that. What, what we're doing right now is we have a large-scale national experiment. Uh, and I think being able to see whether this experiment is truly successful at some point will require descheduling or, or unscheduling. What kind of change do you think on marijuana policy is realistic at the federal level right now? Well, I would be delighted if Congress would provide some protections to the states to allow them for banking, for instance. I think that's something that could be done through rulemaking uh, or through, through Congress. I personally think that states, state by state, should be allowed to, just like with alcohol, vote thumbs up or thumbs down for marijuana. And within that context, just as we see in, in Oklahoma, parts of Texas, you know, they're dry counties that you can't buy liquor I think in the same way counties in, in Colorado and other states should be allowed to have that freedom as well, though obviously each state would have to make that decision. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with the governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. To opioids now. So a mostly rural county in southern Colorado just became the first in the state to sue drug companies for their role in the opioid crisis. Deaths from opioids and heroin are particularly high in Werfano County, and they say the drug companies put profits ahead of patients' well-being and overstated how safe these narcotics really were. Uh, other counties may do the same, and uh, they have across the country. Some states have joined this legal action as well. Colorado is not among them. Do you think Colorado should sue the drug companies? Well, certainly should talk to the Attorney General, Attorney General Kaufman. That's in her purview, more than it is mine. Is it something you'd like to see her do? I, I would certainly like to see a robust uh, exploration of what are the facts, because I, there was so much effort and resource that this was a great way to deal with pain. And even as we began seeing this opioid epidemic unfolding, it didn't seem like there was any response by the pharmaceutical companies, and even by, the, the, in many cases, the medical establishment. You, you talk about exploring this. I mean, isn't it pretty clear that the drug companies uh, acted to at least obfuscate in this case? That I, I, I don't have the information. That's what, again, I hear stories and I hear tales. But, You're not convinced of them. Yeah, and, 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 but we are going to go out and get that information. What more do you want to find out about how these pharmaceuticals acted? So I'd like to see at what point they're marketing how did it change? Uh, at which point did, were they aware and was it clear? The addiction start really at scale. Was it in 2000 or was it 2005? Was it 2010? I don't have those facts, but I think that's relevant to 
if we already knew we had a wide-scale epidemic and the pharmaceutical companies were still out there selling as hard as they could, not putting any more disclaimers, not going to the state medical associations or the, or the national medical associations saying, hey, doctors, you need to cut back prescriptions. This is something that we're worried about what the, the unintended consequences are. Certainly the, the, the stories that we're hearing are that nothing like that happened, that, the, that there was an unbridled passion to sell more opioids. If that's true, even after everyone was aware that this was a, a becoming a crisis, call the lawyers. One more legal question for you. This is about a man who spent 28 years in prison for a crime he was later acquitted of. Clarence Moses Eel is seeking compensation from the state for all that time he was wrongly locked up. Uh, he could get almost $2 million. Uh, in this case, Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman is fighting Moses Eel's claim, saying he hasn't proven he was actually innocent. Moses Eel's lawyer says the evidence to prove that uh, was destroyed by police. Do you think that the attorney general has made the right decision here? Well, certainly the loss of the DNA evidence is unbelievable and regrettable. And I I can't, you know, these are the kinds of things. There's human error, and I accept it. But for this person to lose that period of his life, and then he doesn't even, isn't allowed to have recourse to the compensation that everybody else gets because... Not only did they conspire against him to make sure that he got convicted when he wasn't guilty, I think that is largely, I think pretty much everyone accepts that now. Not everyone. Many people accept that. I would prefer that the system allowed some compensation, that the attorney general could say, well, you've lost the evidence. We, we don't think $2 million is appropriate, even though that's how many days and, and at what cost we use. That's what's right. But maybe since the evidence was lost, we'll, we'll give you some lesser compensation. Do you know if there's anything that prevents the attorney general from doing that? My understand- Now, I'm not a lawyer, and you'd have to talk to the attorney general. My understanding is that that is a calculation that it's either all or nothing, and that she's using, well, the DNA is lost, therefore you get nothing. Do you agree with her decision? You know, I don't have all the facts. I don't, again, I have not been from the beginning of the end intimately part of this case the way she has. Let me say that the attorney general's office has argued they're looking at the Exoneration Act, this relevant legislation, carefully, and Moses Heal hasn't met the legal threshold to get that money. Uh, And they're lawyers, and they, one would hope, understand this at a deeper level. But as a citizen, and I think I represent people that aren't lawyers and that just know what we know from the papers and not a detailed knowledge of of what the law specifics are, it feels wrong. I'll say that the dispute between the AG's office and Moses Seal and his attorneys means that there'll be a civil trial with a jury, which will undoubtedly cost taxpayers something, although I can't say how it compares to the, say, $2 million that Moses Seal is asking for. Okay, I want to ask you about an unconventional idea you shared in your State of the State speech, that computer coding could be considered a foreign language. Uh, like in schools that require French or Spanish or some other language, students could take coding instead. Is that an idea you're serious about pursuing? Absolutely. I think, A, our world is changing so rapidly that coding is becoming, I think in five or ten years it's going to be a base requirement that every, every kid, if they're going to have an opportunity to compete for the good jobs in the emerging economies, they're going to have to have some knowledge of coding. They don't have to major in it. They don't have to be, quote-unquote, fluent. But I think more and more... Kids to get good jobs are going to need to know something about coding. 
And I think that in, in a funny way, learning coding is not that dissimilar from learning a language. What would have to change to make that a foreign language? Like we were a local control state, meaning that local districts exert a lot of control, but would that be about the Colorado Department of Education sort of recognizing it in that sense, applying the credits or something? Well, they, they could recognize it and encourage local school districts. Because if you take two or three years of coding, you've got a big head start. doesn't mean you're going to become an electrical engineer or you're going to go to you know, MIT, but it, I mean... All robots, automation, all these new technologies are going to need technicians. And those technicians aren't going to need a college degree, but they are going to need to know something about coding. So just briefly, you've made this a priority then for the Secretary of Education? Certainly, we've discussed it, yeah. We are a local control state, as you point out, rightfully. And so we have to use persuasion Persuasion. rather than the stick. We're using carrots. Which is also a a, a computer symbol. Oh, there you go. Carrots. Which which carrot are you using? I'll start using that more often. I I like that, Ryan. Governor, thanks for your time. Oh, you bet. Anytime. Democrat John Higginlooper, governor of Colorado. We speak regularly at the state capitol. David Cohen has invested in more than a thousand companies that have generated billions in profits. I can't imagine the heaps of pitches he's waded through to find the ones that will actually make it, like Uber. Cohen lives in Boulder, and he's also known for founding the startup accelerator Techstars, Techstars, that is. As part of our coverage of entrepreneurship in this state, the Disruptors, Cohen's going to talk about how to pick a winner and why some startups fail, even when they seem to have everything going for them. And David, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Lest we make it sound like you walk on water, uh, was there a company that you were sure would succeed but didn't? Oh, many. I mean, every investment you make. Uh, I'm over 1,300 investments now. Uh, of course, when you make it, you, you expect it to work, and many of them don't. And many of them don't. Um, can you give me an example? Sure. Um, you know, one I often talk about is a company that went through our, our Boulder Accelerator program called EventView, uh, which we were really excited about. It was a way to uh, get more value out of conferences for attendees and organizers, raised plenty of money, and uh, had a great team. And, you know, ultimately the market just didn't materialize. It didn't find the right fit. And, you know, the founders, interestingly, went on to be a big part of some of the successful stories in Boulder, like Ganip that sold to Twitter and, you know, became parts of those teams. But, you know, that one didn't work. When you look at it in retrospect, is there an indication you missed as to why it didn't work when you thought it would? No, I mean, you know, when, in that particular one, um, I'd say it's the, the two things that I always talk about when we think about startups that don't work. Um, the two reasons really tend to be at a high level uh, that they're building something that, that people just don't ultimately care about or want, uh, or they don't uh, end up with the right team. Uh, there's some kind of team problem where they either don't hire the right people into the company, they don't build the right um, you know, advisory board or board of directors, or those people just aren't dedicated enough to it. You know, it's usually not that you run out of money or something like that. It's it's one of those two reasons in my experience most often. Well, that's interesting. I w- would have thought that running out of money is a major reason things don't work. We're going to talk a lot about people in this conversation uh, and the importance of team to success in just a bit. But I want to say that we called you up to talk about failure and success after a local company that we'd featured on this show ran into some trouble. And it seemed to have everything going for it, like lots of investment, a proven CEO. It had already placed its product in big national stores like Target. 
and then it had to undergo a massive change in order to survive. Uh, and that's not unusual. More than half of companies in Colorado close within five years. And you think that that has a lot to do with the team behind them, right? Well, it you know, in this particular case, the story is pretty complex. But what you see with startups that, you know, grow over time, you know, Techstars itself is 11 years old, right? So we've been through several phases. And, you know, people imagine startups growing in this linear fashion that, you know, things work and it just scales and it's this beautiful thing. But really, it's more of a stair step. Um, and I think what you see, you know, with the company you're talking about is it got to a certain level, right? And then faced the next set of challenges. And often, you know, you need to, for example, bring in a CEO that might be more experienced with that stage in the market or, you know, solve funding at another level. And so, you know, really these startups grow in spurts. They don't grow in this linear fashion. And I think this is an example of just hitting one of those levels, doing really great, but then having to get to the next level. The picture that's coming to me is like a shedding or a molting. Uh, Companies that eventually may succeed have to go through this process sometimes that can be pretty painful, pretty involved of evolving. That's right. And, and it's, it's often around the team. Um, you know, even at Techstars, you know, we got to a certain stage and I realized I'm not, you know, the person that's going to scale this. I'm not the operating uh, you know, genius that can manage hundreds of people. That's not who I am. So I brought in one of my co-founders, David Brown, who has that skill and I focused more on investing. So I think, you know, companies go through these evolutions and periods as they grow in scale and companies like Uber that I've been involved in have been no different, right? You see all of the you know, if you follow that story, different CEOs, different you know board members and phase changes. But on day one, you know, you had no idea it was going to work. You, you just believe that it might. You have six criteria that you look for when you are screening potential companies. And three, I understand, are about the team behind the idea. Sure. Team, 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 market progress idea. Uh, that's the mantra around Techstars for how we try to pick winners. Um, and of course, it is stage dependent, right? We're talking about, you know, getting a company off the ground from from zero, from startup. At later stages, you might pick winners a different way, but that's how we think about it. We say team three times because it's that important. We really look for their intrinsic motivation. What is the reason that they're doing this? Their why? Uh, Simon Sinek has a great start with why video that you could look at if you're not familiar with that. But it's why, why are you doing this versus something else? And where does it come from more than just making the money? So that's why there's so much focus on team. Mm, Understanding motivation. Uh, You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, The Disruptors, about entrepreneurship in Colorado, we're talking about why good ideas sometimes fail. And uh, I have to say that since we really focused on covering entrepreneurship in Colorado, we've gotten dozens, maybe hundreds of pitches from companies that want to be featured on the show. I imagine that's about how many you get every day. How do you just practically handle the barrage and just sort through the pitches to find winners? Well, we talked about team. I mean, we have a great team around us. There's 35 of us that focus on the investing activity out of several hundred globally uh, in the organization. And so we split it up and we look at it and we have a lot of trust, Um, you know, and we have a a platform that allows us to fund about 400 companies a year around the world. So that platform is growing and we take a lot of chances. We we look for that intersection of something that sounds like a bad idea, but, you know, could really be big, could really be a good idea. And that's, that's where we find the money as investors, hopefully. Something that sounds like a bad idea? Yeah, we found it, uh, you know, when, when you talk about this future, you know, 10 years ago, that 
people would get in strangers' cars and ride around. This sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like it's going to have all kinds of regulatory problems. But in fact, it is a good idea. And that's where the opportunity is as an investor. Because if, if something sounds like a good idea and is, you'll probably do okay. But if it sounds like a bad idea and is a great idea, you'll probably do really well. Are there other examples of that? I mean, that's really where disruption comes in, right? Isn't that what people mean? Yeah, unexpected. Um, another easy example would be something like Airbnb, that the idea that you're going to you know, stay in a stranger's house instead of a hotel, and then that's going to be you know, as big or bigger than a Marriott or a you know, big organization like that sounds crazy. Uh, but in fact, it turns out that's what people want. It's almost as if it's just crazy enough to work. It's a good way to think about it. Exactly. And I think, you know, when I think about all the companies we've funded, uh, most of the ones that have done really well and, and, you know, gotten huge, especially in the consumer segment, are ones that we had a lot of doubt about. But hey, let's try it. Let's see if people like this. And then it turns into something big. When companies fail in the latter stages of their developments, why does that happen? Well, you know, staying on the, the focus of Uber, and I, I, you know, who knows if it's going to fail. It seems like it's doing great. But you see the types of challenges if you follow that story in the media, um, you know, with a large board of 17 people and sort of some battles with the CEO, and then they end up replacing the CEO. And, you know, if you don't bring in someone that, that has the right DNA, the right experience, the whole thing can turn on you, right? You have companies that are behind you, challenging you like Lyft or you know, other companies around the world that are following your model that could easily gain ground on you. So, you know, I think that the trick is to manage the transitions that inevitably will happen well. David Cohen from Techstars, as good as you've proven to be at this, there have to be some companies you didn't bite on, but that went on to be a big success. Can, can you give me an example of a, of a missed opportunity or two? There are some, you know, there's so many great companies in the world that have created value that people still don't know the names of. But, you know, Lyft that I mentioned earlier, um, I had an opportunity to invest very early there um, when it was actually called Zimride. Uh, instead, oh. I invested in Uber, but I, I could have been in both of them. So I, I sort of saw that market developing, uh, missed that one, should have focused on the people and not so much the idea, which was different. It was more of a regional you know, city to city ride share which I thought was a smaller market, but they, they pivoted and followed Uber and were great people and have done great. And there's others, uh, but that's probably the biggest one that you sort of wish, uh, you know, would have been nice. I understand you also would have passed on Twitter, given the chance? Yeah, to me, that was one of the dumbest things I'd ever seen in that moment in time. Um, <laughs> I just, I remember being at South by Southwest. I'm, I'm one of the first, I don't know, 5,000 or so users uh, and I was on it, and I thought, who's going to want to talk about what they had for breakfast this morning, you know, on social media? This is crazy. And now it's changed the world of, of news and how information is distributed. And, you know, they have an office in Boulder. They acquired a company uh, there, and it's just an amazing company. But, yeah, my first reaction was, this is this is silly. And that happens a lot. Well, it's funny because you, you, you said that bad ideas are often the ones you pay attention to, but that was one that was silly, and you didn't. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to be in that one. So that's why it's not the top oh, of my I, list. Okay. Um, I, I never was sort of in the loop on it um, until after it was funded and just became a user. So that's why I had Lyft higher. But yeah, I certainly would have loved to have been. Thanks for speaking with us, especially about the importance of team in this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. David Cohen of Boulder founded Techstars, the startup accelerator. He's also an investor. And we talked to him as part of our coverage of entrepreneurship in the state. We call it The Disruptors.
Now, an update. The FBI this week searched a funeral home in Montrose that we told you about, one that doubled as a body parts broker, the only one in the country that conducts both lines of business under the same roof. FBI Special Agent Amy Sanders couldn't elaborate on this week's search of Sunset Mesa, which also housed a company called Donor Services. The operation was the subject of a Reuters series about the body trade. Reporter John Schiffman was our guest. This is unusual, and some ethicists with funeral associations have said, you know, this is a recipe for potential trouble because you've got potential conflicts of interest here. Also, there's a question of consent. Do the people who are donating their bodies know how they're going to be used? You know, is there any indication that people who use the funeral homes, they know that the bodies were properly buried and were properly disposed of? Sunset Mesa and Donor Services are owned and operated by Megan Hess of Montrose. She didn't respond to CPR's request for comment. Selling body parts is not a crime in Colorado, but it is illegal for funeral home operators to defraud customers. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters. Thirty-one top athletes from Colorado are gearing up to give it their all at the Winter Olympics in South Korea. The game's opening ceremonies are tomorrow, and Team USA is well-fortified with Colorado athletes more than any other state, according to the U.S. Olympic Committee. To talk about some of the most prominent homegrown competitors is Denver Post reporter and longtime Olympic writer John Meyer. He sits down with my colleague Nathan Heffel. John, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. There are so many Coloradan Olympians to watch these games. But let's start with one of the stalwarts, Lindsey Vaughn from Vail. If you watch the Super Bowl, you may have seen a commercial featuring the highs and lows of her career. She missed the 2014 games in Russia because of a knee injury. Where is she at physically right now? And what are her prospects for meddling? Well, I think they're good. And I think when you talk about 31 or 33 Colorado athletes, depending on on how you you total them up— Clearly, the two key members of the entire U.S. Olympic team are those two from Vail, Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schiffer. Yeah. Uh, L- Lindsey has a knee that aches from time to time, but she's at a point where she's she's good to go. She's good to go. She won her last three downhill races. She, you know, in the Olympics, she is going to retire most likely as the greatest ski racer of all time in terms of World Cup victories. But there is a little bit of a hole in her resume in that she, from the Olympics, in that she medaled twice in 2010, missed 2014. So, you know, she will, for sure, she's already got the World Cup record for women. She's only five behind the the men's record, so she's likely to to retire as the winningest ski racer in history. But to add another medal or two to the two she already has would really kind of fill in her resume uh, in a way that would really, in most minds, make her one of the greatest of all time. So, so what do you think means more to her? Uh, this this gold medal in Pyeongchang, or maybe becoming the all around winningest you know person in skiing? In the final analysis, it's the World Cup Hmm. because ski racers will always tell you – see, 
we we Americans focus on the Olympics, but every odd number of year there's also world championships. There are medals there too. If you win a medal there, you're a world champion. You win a medal at the Olympics, you're an Olympic champion. But that's one day, one race. Fluky things happen in ski races. Uh, most of the time, ski racers winning Olympic medals are deserving, but there are, have been some flukes out there. Whereas you, to, win, to win a World Cup overall title, which is to say score the most points across a season, there's nothing fluky about that. Uh, Michaela Schifrin won it last year. She's way ahead this year. You, nobody ever says there's a fluke um, when it comes to the World Cup. So, so I think in the final final analysis, the fact that she gets that over, overall record will mean mean the most. But she'll be, but also she dreamed of being an Olympic champion, which which she was able to do in 2010 in the downhill, and would love to bookend that with another medal or two. You mentioned Michaela Schifrin, also from Vail. I want to talk to her, uh, talk about her for a bit. Um, it appears that NBC, which is televising the Olympics, has decided that she's going to be a darling of the Olympics. And, uh, you know, she's the reigning World Cup champ, as you said, and also won a gold medal in 2014 in the women's slalom. I recently spoke with Nick Palmgarten of The New Yorker, who profiled Schifrin, and here's his take. She's spent more time practicing when she was a little kid than racing. You know, we see this a lot with, with, uh, Kid athletes, they have, you know, like hockey players will have 65 games a year and they hardly ever practice. The Schifrin's recognized early, let's practice more than we race. And so she had more time rather than standing around waiting in the start, freezing her butt off. She was doing runs, doing runs, doing runs, honing her turns. How would you compare Vaughn and Schifrin styles? Is it the difference between a technician like Schifrin versus someone who just goes for it and flies down the mountain? No, because Lindsay came uh, began as a slalom racer too, and it, uh, uh, the difference was that Lindsay had had a, a she has a love for speed. She loves to go eighty miles an hour on skis. Whereas, when the case of, of Michaela and and this guy from the New Yorker is right, that the way they trained her, and also the way they trained Michaela was. Uh, you would know the the guy who wrote the book, and I don't know, but it, it, forget the name, but it's the guy that says that you can master anything if you practice 10,000 hours or whatever. You can become an expert of 10,000. That was a, a trendy book of, of, yeah. uh, about a decade and ago. And so by practicing and practicing and practicing, you get that buildup for speed. Mastery. Ma- Ma- it, Malcolm Gladwell. That's it. Yeah. And it applies to, not to sports, just but but anything. So her her dad was a big proponent of that, and so it was about master, master, master. First, you master ma- slalom, then she mastered. So which she did, hence, you know, two world championships medals in slalom, an Olympic medal in slalom. Last year in giant slalom, she won her first medal at a world championships in GS. This year, she's starting to do downhill. And she's she's got three podium appearances and two wins this year. So she has moved from slalom to GS to to super G and downhill in a very uh, logical manner. Whereas Lindsay came earlier to speed than than Michaela did. Uh, Michaela will be a great speed skier, but right now she her her specialties are more in the slalom and giant slalom. Whereas for Lindsay, it's downhill and super G. What's their relationship like? Is there an element of maybe passing the torch going on here with these games? Both of them are there. You know, I haven't had it, been around them at in the, at the same time together for quite a while. But I would just say, uh, first of all, Michaela 
Michaela is exactly the way she appears to you on television. She is 100% genuine and kind-hearted and respectful. None of that is an act. So when she tells you how much she admires Lindsay and what Lindsay has done and calls Lindsay the greatest of all time, she is being 100% sincere. Uh, I, I know that Lindsay also has great respect for Michaela. Now, I sense that there's no rivalry. I sense that there is no resentment. But I think there must be a little part of Lindsay's heart that says, you know, in 2018, I thought I was going to be the star. And now there's actually two stars. And Michaela's getting a lot of the spotlight as well. And, you know, she wouldn't be human if she didn't wish a little bit more of that spotlight was on her. But I can tell you there's no resentment. The way there was between Lindsay and Julia Mancuso earlier in earlier years on the ski team. I want to turn to other athletes. Of sure. course, there are so many that we're uh, watching. Uh, one of them is uh, Wiley Maple. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also a skier out of Aspen, but he isn't a star, of course, like Vaughn and Schifrin. He's uh, had to pay his way to World Cup circuit games or uh, matches and things like that. He's he's six foot two, weighs more than 200 pounds. He looks like an NFL linebacker, but he is going to be skiing in the Olympics. Is he this underdog here? He is to- the total underdog. And, and I think uh, a story I did at the Denver Post made him a little bit of a cult hero to, to some. and got a big response. But, yeah, he's just a guy who, what, is he 28 or so? I yeah. think, uh, and who just loves ski racing, and he gets, it ke- keeps kicking him in the teeth with with bad results um, or injuries, and his injuries are fluke injuries. Like one time, he broke his ankle while being while the passenger in a car driven by his ski tech. The car, the car crashed in Lake Louise on an icy road. Lake Louise is a World Cup stop, so he wasn't even at fault, and he winds up with a broken ankle. Uh, another time, he broke his arm uh, running the night before a race up in Beaver Creek. So he's had a ton of bad luck, but he just keeps coming back because, and he, you know, he, he hasn't got a payback from the sport yet. And I don't just mean financially; I mean he hasn't gotten the the payback of of being successful. Although now, I, if we had a chance to talk to him today, I'll bet he would say making this Olympic team—that's the payback. And so it's just it's wonderful to see him rewarded in this way. He's not going to win a medal. But it's going to be great to watch him watch him race. And for the rest of his life, he'll be able to say, I was an Olympian. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. John Meyer is a reporter for the Denver Post who's covered many Olympics. He talked with Nathan Heffel about the 2018 Games, which are kicking off in South Korea. According to the U.S. Olympic Committee, there are 31 Coloradans on the team, more than any other state. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's no cure for lupus, so Rhonda Jackson has learned to live with the disease and is still learning. She has turned her journals about the experience into a new play. Crying Wolf, Stories of Lupus Warriors premieres tonight in Denver. And hi, Rhonda. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Uh, Lupus is an autoimmune disease. More than 30,000 people in Colorado have it. I want to know, what's the most theatrical thing that has happened to you in real life having this disease? Ah, the most theatrical thing. Well, I would say, um, for me, like, falling. You know, my balance is off. And falling is often a big fear that I have every day. 
Like, you know, am I going to get through that door? Am I going to um, be able to uh, make a presentation without falling? And so, I mean, it's not funny, but sometimes, you know, I have to be a little self-deprecating because, you know, I mean, falling can be funny unless it's happening to you. So, and it can be kind of visually funny, Uh uh you know. Have you fallen with lupus? Many times. Many times. And I have the scars and the battle wounds to show it on my knees. I've uh, I've fallen after making a presentation. I've fallen going into a restaurant. Uh, my balance is just, you know, is very off. So some of these have been like public, very visible fallings. Falls. Yes, 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 yes. And um, nothing, you know, terribly... Um, catastrophic but yeah falling is one of my biggest fears i guess because it has happened to me do you deal with that on stage on stage we talk about stairs there's a monologue in a play called stairway to hell and so uh you know we talk about getting up the stairs falling how you deal with it and um you know, it's 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 a light moment, but it's very serious, and I'm sure that it's happened to many people. It's not just a story that's unique to me. There's a lot of that tension in this production between serious and funny, being able to laugh at something but also feel the pain of it. Tell, tell me how this journal started. It, it's really the underpinning of this show. Well, the journal started and the journey started when I was really, really, really in a serious flare, and... I couldn't do anything else. So lupus flares up. Yes. Like when you're in a flare, you're, you know, you're very sick with vi- numerous things. Um, fever, severe fatigue, rash, um, lupus fog, as we call it. Um, lupus fog. Lupus fog. Mental clarity. Yes, mental clarity. That's a very real uh, symptom of having lupus. Or a, a lack thereof. I lack thereof, Yes. And you just can't quite focus in on things and, you know, you're forgetful and, you know, your brain is just foggy. It's kind of like a temporary dementia, you might say. Wow. And you wanted to write about this. Well, I wanted to write about it because, quite honestly, I couldn't do anything else. (laughs) You know, I was, um, you know, I went into a very serious flare-up around 2011, 2012, and um, I lost my job, and I was incapacitated to some degree. And so I, there was nothing else I could do. I, you know, I was not working. I was um, feeling terrible all the time. And so as a cathartic, um, for me, it became cathartic because the one thing that I could do was write. How painful to lose your job over this. Well, I didn't lose my job over it. Uh-huh. It was kind of a simultaneous thing. Okay. But I did lose my job in 2012, and it was um, unexpected, and it was a scary feeling. And an extra layer of And an extra layer of stress. And anyone that has an autoimmune disease knows that stress is the worst thing for an autoimmune disease. So I was kicked into overdrive on that um, stressful situation. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new production, Crying Wolf, stories of lupus warriors. 
the writer of this production is Rhonda Jackson, and uh, you were diagnosed with lupus in 1994. I want to note that women of color, like yourself, are two to three times more likely to be affected by it, according to the Lupus Foundation of Colorado. Yes, that's true. How did you learn that you had lupus? Well, it was kind of odd. I um, I was... Uh, I had a miscarriage in 1994 and I went to the doctor just to get checked out. And, you know, I complained of joint pain, muscle pain. And, um, I, I, I spoke to the doctor about it and she did a, a barrage of tests and she said, you know, I want you to come into my office. And she said, I think you have lupus and I'm going to send you to a rheumatologist. And I went to the rheumatologist and it was confirmed that I did have lupus based on, you know, some blood values and blood work and everything. But honestly, it didn't affect me that much in my younger years. It took a while to get to the point where you were having these flare-ups. Yeah, the disease progressed for me. Now, even though this production is based on your experiences, you don't consider the play to be autobiographical. So it features three actresses whose characters don't have names, um, and it's staged as a series of vignettes depicting different experiences that you've had with the disease. Uh, One of those vignettes is called, Well, Polly, It's Not Nice to Meet You. (laughs) What's that about? Well, that particular vignette is... Um, I was diagnosed with polymyositis in 2013. What's that? Polymyositis, which is poly, meaning many, mm-hmm. myositis, meaning muscles. And so what happened to me is it started affecting my muscles. And it got to the point where, you know, I couldn't really raise my hands over my head. I couldn't put my arms on my desk. I couldn't adjust my rearview mirror. It was just very difficult and still is. This is a chronic inflammation. Yeah. Well, polymyositis is a muscle disease, really. And for some reason, my lupus manifested itself in that way. As this. Along with other things. But um, poly, it's not nice to meet you, is um, a, a vignette that's... it's. It's it's fairly comical because what I'm what they're saying is, you know, Polly, I don't need to meet you. Are you another distant cousin of lupus? You know, are you another distant cousin of fibromyalgia, thrombocytopenia? I don't need to meet you. Enough I'm not already. interested in seeing you again. Uh-huh. Go away. Indeed, your play is quite funny at times. How did I get it? Hell, I don't know. I didn't go to Amazon Prime and put this How did I get this? I certainly didn't go to Amazon. Uh, In another scene, uh, a character is stranded on the toilet after her muscles fail her, and you you infuse some humor in that. True story. Stranded. Phone's ringing, and uh, you can't get to the phone, and, you know, you can't do anything. Hi, this is Lupus. I'm sorry I can't take your call right now. I'm too busy (laughs) making people miserable. How has humor helped you cope? Humor has helped me cope with this disease in a way that I could never I could never even explain or imagine. And although the the vignettes or the situations are not really funny, but honestly it's so miserable that you have to find some humor in it. That's an outlet. Where, where does the name of the play just briefly come from? Crying Wolf. Crying Wolf comes from it's a takeoff on Aesop's fable, yeah. the boy who cried wolf. And wolf in Latin 
Oh, lu- lu- lupus. Lupus. Lupus okay. is, you know, in Latin it means, you know, it means wolf. And so crying wolf goes back to the fact that lupus sufferers are often, they look normal. They look like there's nothing wrong with them. They're not in pain. Um, but that is quite the contrary. Mm. <laughs> Just because you look well. Doesn't mean you are well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's an unrecognized disability. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. I'm so pleased that this disease is finally getting a voice. She is playwright Rhonda Jackson, and her new show is Crying Wolf, Stories of Lupus Warriors. Source Theatre Company performs it through February 17th at Sioux Teatro in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.